Welcome to Church at the Well podcast. Thank you for joining us. All right, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. So you can turn there now and please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all the toil and all the skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again. I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Father, you are good. You are holy. You are sovereign. Lord, you have us here for a very specific purpose. I pray that you would reveal that to us through your Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that as we go over this difficult passage that you would enlighten us, you would encourage us, you would convict us, Lord, you would truly help us to make it personal. And we thank you for that gift in the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, good morning. Um, If you're new here, welcome. My name's Kevin, I'm the lead pastor of Church at the Well. I'm excited that you're here. We've been going through The book of Ecclesiastes, just kind of verse by verse here, we find ourselves in chapter four. Um, I'm wearing a shirt today to, in solidarity with my uh, team that ran the Spartan race um, last, or yesterday. I'm tired and a little sore. I came to the reality yesterday that I'm old. Um, I'm 47, and it doesn't seem that old. But when you're running with 29 and 30-year-olds, it feels really old. So I've realized that I never was the slow guy, and now I'm that guy, right? I'm the guy that everybody has to watch, like, oh, man, like, we're up here, and he's back there, and now we've got to stop and wait for him. And I've just accepted that. I'm just going to be the slow guy. So that was my lesson yesterday. Um, The team did great. We're going to be doing more of these. One of the things that I, the reason that we do these, and somebody asked me, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I believe that obstacle races provide a great example of a spiritual walk, right? You cannot do obstacle races without a team, at least I can't. So you're required to work together to get over the obstacles. It it requires some endurance and it pushes you. And then every obstacle that you come to is difficult, right? It if you can't figure out how that matches life in your spiritual walk, then, you know, I mean, it's obvious how that works. So what we do is we'll, we kind of do a little, I remind us of this before we run, and then we run together, and then at every water stop, we stop and we pray um, together. And so anybody can do these. Uh, for some reason, I, I get the feeling that some people are like, oh, we used to have much bigger teams that would do these, but some people are like, oh, there's no way I can do this. I'm old, okay, and I can do it. So and encourage you, the next one coming up will be the mutter in the summer, and that one's a little harder, but I'd encourage you to join us, because it's a lot of fun. Um, All right, enough of that. 
2020. You all have lived through it at this point. Everybody in this room experienced the issues of 2020, and there were numerous. I read a blog yesterday that was fascinating to me. It was talking about how the people that are currently living have lived through this century's greatest unintentional sociological experiment, and it's going to be assessed for the rest of our life. Fascinating to think about. Um, And here's what's interesting about thinking about it is I was reading this article. Everybody experienced it different depending upon where you lived, right? So um, some of it became political. So if you happen to live in an area that tended to be one uh, political heavy one way, then maybe you had certain feelings about it. Whereas if you lived another way place, you had different feelings about it politically. But there was also kind of a, a way that different people handled the situation. Now, if you lived in big city like Boston, it was much different than if you lived in the suburbs or if you lived in a state that is um, wide open, right? So you have the issue with the city is that you have a lot of people compacted into a very small space. So what was experienced in Boston looked different than friends that I know who live in rural Idaho, okay? So to them, or I guess in Florida where it actually never existed, but sorry. <laughs> it, if <laughs> in... in um, Sorry, that was a bad joke, but it made, me laugh. it made me think. Everybody handled it differently. That's my point, okay? But I have friends who live in rural areas, and to them, life didn't really change other than they couldn't get certain things that they were accustomed to getting because other areas were being impacted. Is that fair? So, um, but in the city, like, the thought that church at the well didn't get together in person for 15 months. Now, if you live in a rural area, you're going, why? Why would that even happen? Well, there were reasons for it, right? Whether you like them or not, it was just our reality. So Church of the Well went online for 15 months. I was preaching to a camera. I hated every second of it. Um, I didn't see you guys in person. I hated every second of that. I thrive. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond extrovert. I don't know what category that is, Okay but I have to be around people. Um, and it, it's, it's vital to me. So internally being separated from, from everyone pushed me into a, a kind of a depressive psyche. One of the things that this article was talking about was the isolation that occurred. And there's results, there's, there's all kinds of issues that, that came about as a result of that. Um, Some of you went through some major pain because of the isolation. And here was the end of the article, right? Regardless, this is it. It said in the article that based on COVID and the isolation that took place in these large cities, they have determined scientifically that being alone is bad. And I thought, how much, first, how many tax dollars went to discovering that? And then, I thought, well, isn't it interesting that every study that's going to take place from this point forward in this psychological kind of sociological experiment is basically going to confirm everything that Solomon's just talking about right now. And that is fascinating to me, right? Um, Being alone is not good. The church itself is special. And it's designed by Jesus and operated and owned and patented by Jesus to bring Christ followers together so that we're not living in isolation. So I'm going to say something first that is going to hurt some people, I guess, and it's not intended to do that other than to say, listen, if you hate the church, I don't know that you understand the gospel. Okay, now here's the thing. Before we dive into all this, I understand some of the reasons that people hate or despise organized religion. 
okay? The, but here's the reality. The closer you get to someone, the more power you give them to hurt you. Okay, that, that's not anything but logic. There's, there's a person in this room that can hurt me more than anybody else in this room, and that would be my wife. She has that ability, right? Why? Because she knows me the best. I've, we trust each other the most, and we're closest. So her words to me have the ability to hurt me more than anybody else. Stranger can come up to me and, and give me an earful, and the reality is I might go, wow, that's not cool, but it doesn't impact me. It's not going to hurt me because I don't know them, and they don't know me. But the closer you get to people, you realize that you understand their issues more. You see their flaws. They see your flaws. The, the more you're around an individual, the more likely you are to disagree. The more trust that you place in someone, the more likely they are to misuse or abuse that trust. And I'm, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It's just, but it's fascinating to me that when we look at the church, we look at individuals coming together to worship Jesus, to be encouraged to live out the gospel, to grow in our relationship with Christ, to become better disciples, to challenge each other, and ultimately to encourage one another in the gospel, and people get hurt. Of course they do. Of course they do. What happens is, as you get close to individuals and you give them more power in your life, the odds are at some point they're going to disappoint you, they're going to hurt you, and then what ends up transpiring over time, and I've just watched this, I've been a pastor for a while, is people go, oh, I just blame the church. Your church is full of hypocrites. Your church is not perfect. Your church, And I will step back and go, amen to all of that. We're messed up. Every week I say, we're dirty, rotten sinners living in a sin-cursed world. There's no... Everybody sitting in here is a dirty, rotten sinner. If you know Jesus, you're forgiven. That's our difference. You're no longer a slave to sin. Big difference. But we still have to deal with the relational issues with one another. We still have to deal with the fact that you're going to make mistakes and I'm going to make mistakes. It's interesting to me that oftentimes when mistakes are made, the first thing, and this only happens in the United States that I'm aware of, the first thing that transpires is, I got to switch churches. I can't, I can't be in this church anymore, right? The reason it happens in the United States is because you have options, right? Church can be like fast food. You don't like this one, you can find another. So if you don't like McDonald's, there's Burger King. If somebody at Burger King makes you mad, you can go to Taco Bell, right? And somehow we transfer that over to church. And it can't be done. There's no growth in it. I say all of that because this is exactly what Solomon's going to talk about. He's despising isolation, and he's warning us of the dangers of it. I went over all of that because I'm attempting to preclude excuses. And if that's not your excuse, then let me explain. Then I'm just talking to me. Because I go through the same stuff. You know, as he's going to eventually say in here in the, the last verses of this passage that basically being a leader is extremely lonely, right? And we all know that. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that here in a second. Um, everybody has things to say about a leader. Everyone. Everyone has their criticisms. Everyone has their issues. Everyone has things to say. I mean, anybody who has reached a certain level, you have things to say about, right? Society has elevated them up. I, I experience all of that as well, right? So I have the same tendencies to make the same excuses. I'm so tired. This is my, me thinking. I'm so tired of being criticized and hurt. It would be easier to stop. 
I'm so tired of the pettiness. I'm so tired of watching individuals fight over things that make no difference whatsoever and their lives just look miserable. And then I have to step in and go, stop it. So this is my burden, right? Like, I get it. So I understand it. And the tendency is oftentimes, like, I remember, so extremely popular pastor, way back when I was at this, I was chatting with him, and he, he says to me, I dream of driving a bread truck. And I'm like, what? Why? He goes, there's no responsibility in driving a bread truck. He goes, all you do is, I don't want to bake the bread. I just want the bread to be loaded on the truck, and I want to drive and drop bread off to people. Everybody loves bread, right? And if I lose everything in the truck, all I've really lost is flour and water. There's no pressure to it. There's no issues to it. It's just, this is, this could just, he just dreamed, and what he's literally saying is, I dream of the responsibility of removing myself. I dream of removing myself from the responsibilities and putting myself in a truck that isolates me because the tendency is to go, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too hard. Okay, so there's my story, but yours is the exact same. Right? How do we deal with that stuff? So turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to run through this pretty quickly because I think it's pretty self-explanatory, and we're going to jump out of order a little bit here at the end because I want to end with what the solution is. Starting in verse 1, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Yeah, that's a pretty bold, strong statement. When you get to the place where you're like, it is better to be dead than it is to be alive, that's intense. I want you to understand and grasp the intensity of the language that's being used here. And then he even takes it further. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Man, it would be better, like it's better to be dead than alive, but it would even be better to have never existed because I don't have to deal with all of the evil that I'm constantly seeing in the world. That's intense, right? That, that, that rocks me to my core a little bit to think, like this is the wisest man who's ever lived. He's preaching to us and looking at the evil when it comes to oppression around the world, he's literally saying, Man, I wish I hadn't seen it. I, it would be better that I hadn't existed because then I wouldn't even have to deal with what I'm observing the world doing to itself. And so he's addressing kind of this idea of evil around oppression. We know that oppression exists. It doesn't have to exist at this high level. It can exist anywhere. It can exist in a, a small startup company. It can exist at home. It can exist at school. Oppression is just an attempt by one person to devalue and overpower and push another individual lower. That's oppression. Okay, and then the continued oppression is to keep them where they're at. That's oppression. Okay, so... We've all seen, we've seen political oppression, we've seen psychological oppression, we've seen personal oppression. At some point, you have been oppressed, so you understand it. We've watched people who are still under oppression today. There's countries that you could go to around the world right now and people groups who are oppressed. Heck, we still deal with that in the United States. Talk to some of your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. Ask them about some of the oppression that they have felt on a daily basis, going to the grocery store or applying for a job. It exists. It's there. And Solomon, who was the wise, once again, wisest man who ever lived, ruled this amazing kingdom, looked at his kingdom and went, 
I still see oppression. It's there. It exists. And when I look at the oppressor, I feel like there's nobody there to help them. It's almost like they're in this hopeless state. They have been pushed aside and they have to deal with the oppression and there's nothing they can do about it. There's no comfort for them. There's nobody fighting for them. There's no love for them. They're completely isolated from the rest, from those who are actually doing the oppression. And what Sol- what's fascinating is Solomon, this isn't, Solomon doesn't like have a political rally and go, okay, grab your stuff and we're gonna go take down the oppressors. He doesn't do that. He falls into this category of going, man, looking at those who are oppressed and lonely and isolated and they feel like they have no hope, it would be better if they were never born. That's intense. That's difficult to process. Let's keep going. Verse four. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So what Solomon is addressing here is this concept of envy. And what he's saying, and we live in the United States of America, so we get this. This is an individual, these are individuals working to place themselves in position of power, authority, achievement, success, however you're going to define that, based upon saying I'm comparing myself to the person next to me. So envy is a desire to have what somebody else has, okay? Frankly, the United States covets this, right? We do, because we're never satisfied. We're never satisfied. You're never satisfied with where you live. You're never satisfied with what you have. You're never satisfied with how much you make. You're never satisfied with how your house looks. I mean, I I use cell phones a lot, but it's just because everybody has one. Everybody has a cell phone, but you want the next one. It's good marketing, but it's also we're never satisfied. I want a better camera on my phone. I don't know why I need a better camera, but I know I want a better camera, why? Because that guy has a better camera and it exists and I gotta have it, right? Do you see how many times that couple or that individual gets to travel and go on vacation? I want that. I want their lifestyle. I like their boss better. When I was growing up, I mean, it's a little bit, a little bit, well, I guess it was while I was growing up. There was a song called Jesse's Girl. Do you guys remember the song? We still sing it. It's great to dance to. And it's fascinating. If you really listen to the words of that song, it's really interesting what it's about. It's catchy. But the guy's like, I want Jesse's girl. Like, that's what I want. I, I don't know if he has a girl, but he wants what he doesn't have, right? I'm envying that. And what Solomon is saying is, I am overwhelmingly disturbed with how many people work out of envy. Isn't that interesting? Like, process that for just a moment. Because I believe this to be accurate to some extent. I mean, we might say, well, I work because I have to. Fair. Think about where you work out of envy. Like, process that for a moment. Is Solomon right? I think so. We have a society that's built around it. So it's interesting. He moves on from here just to kind of close that section out by saying, hey, I'm observing that, that people like work out of envy, and 
then so maybe the solution would be nobody works. Right? And everybody's like, cool. But he says, listen, verse five, the foal folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's pretty graphic to think about, but accurate. Like when I read that, I thought about like the stories of the people that, you know, landed in, on the plane, right? The teams or whatever, and they were isolated and they had no food and it was cold. And you go from there because I don't want to get graphic, right? Desperation causes us to do crazy things, right? And he's like, we can't not work. You got to work because you got to eat. I mean, this is in the Proverbs, right? I mean, if you study Proverbs, you know that it says like constantly, I'm paraphrasing, Lord, give me enough to survive, but help me understand that enough I can be content with, right? Like, give me enough so I don't feel like I have to go steal because I have to eat. But don't give me so much that I start processing this working in envy, right? So that's not a solution. It's, it's not, then he says in verse six, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. He's talking about contentment and work. And ultimately what he's referring to here is This idea of working out of a motivation of envy and an attempt to gain over the next person is isolating. It's hard to, it would really, 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 really be hard, really, for the guy singing Jesse's Girl to be friends with Jesse while he's coveting his girl. There's an isolation that occurs. It's really hard to have good intentions towards somebody when you envy and covet what they have over you. It's really hard. I'm gonna show you the connection to pray for oppressors when you long to be the oppressor. There's an isolation that occurs. Even in how we work, Solomon is recognizing that we have the ability to separate ourselves from people because we envy them. Uh, so my dad was a cop, and I, so I grew up with a cop father. That wasn't easy. There's a whole lot of issues around there, right? Our relationship struggled because he was a great interrogator, not a great conversationalist. Um, he lived by a very strict code of ethics. Um, there was tension and even being a kid knowing that my dad was going to work carrying a gun and there was a reason for that like is he coming home I mean I worked through that as a, at an older age but it's possible right here my dad tells stories right about a showdown that happened or you know him having to arrest someone or you know whatever it is right there's there's difficulty there was difficulty in that um I remember my dad once, like, so the, where I grew up, it was a town called Bakersfield. It's, it's, there's not much there. So the big thing that happens in Bakersfield every year is what was called the Kern County Fair. Now, if you've ever been to a fair, they're very fair, right? Like there's nothing great about a fair. And you like animals, that could be great. The food's kind of good. Nowhere else can you get a fried stick of butter, right? My dad hated the fair. He hated it. He hated it with a passion because when he would take me as a kid to the fair, he was face to face with many people that he had arrested and it made him uncomfortable. Um, 
And so he would, he would say, like, let's, let's not go there. But one of the things that I found fascinating, it has stuck with me because I realized, like, my dad would say, and he would associate, like, the fair with this. Okay, this is not knocking anybody. This is just how it worked. He would say, when I feel like our family is struggling, it's easy to go look at somebody who is struggling more than us and then use that as motivation to feel good about what's going on and everything's good. So in this comparison game, it goes both ways. I'm comparing myself to work harder because I envy that individual And then on the flip side, I'm turning around and I'm comparing myself to people that are lower than me and saying, at least I'm not them. This is human nature. I'm not as bad as them, so I must be okay, but I still am working toward this. You follow? And so the fair was like his, you know, I see a lot of people that I arrest in one place. I'm not as bad as them. So in some ways, he'd be like, I want to go to the fair because it builds me up. And otherwise, I don't want to go because it pushes me down. This comparison game thing isolates us so much. It just, it never ends. Jump down to verse 13 for me. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who had no longer knew how to take advice. For he had went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this, is also, this also is vanity and striving after wind. The story here is simple. He's telling a story of kind of two kings. One, I guess, could be him. He's been king for a while. The kingdom's there. He's tried to do some good, potentially. It says that he's kind of gotten arrogant to where he doesn't listen to anybody else anymore. We have all been there, right? Um. I experience this a lot when I'm driving. My wife knows directions better than I do. I don't have a great sense of direction, but I refuse to admit that I don't have a great sense of direction. So we make a lot of U-turns. If you've driven with me, you know that. It's like the GPS says to go that way, and I'm going, I'd be a terrible pilot. I've just realized that. (laughs) Because pilots are required to listen to their instruments, and I'm like, I know better, right? Um. So maybe that's Solomon, he's comparing himself to that, and, he's, and as he walks through the story, and he's going to bring another character in a second, he goes, there's going to come a point where even though I've achieved everything that you can achieve in life, somebody's going to come behind me, and I'm going to be forgotten by most people over time, and on top of it, they're going to, we've talked about this, but they're going to take what I've done, and they may change it. It doesn't mean it's going to be changed for the bad. We've talked about what that might look like. In previous section, it could be changed for the good, right? I mean, I know this is difficult because everybody has their political convictions, but I have, I'm not, I'm not very political. I don't, um, and you look at the presidents of the United States, because this is my only context I have for leaders, okay? Presidents of the United States. I haven't ever looked at a president of the United States and gone, I hate every single thing that they do. I haven't. The occasion, um, at some point in a person's presidency, I'm like, oh, I like that. That was a good decision. That was, that was wise. That was good. And then most of the time, I'm like, this is the best we've got, right? Like, that's usual, my response. But I, I've never, like, looked at an individual and just gone, like, oh, my God, every single thing. That I, nobody is like that, right? And some of you may want to disagree, and that's fine. We... Most of the time, that's what we look at. But here's the thing, like no matter how much good a president does or bad, the next one's coming in in four or eight years. And do you know what they do? Everything different. They even like redecorate the White House. 
right? Everything changes. And Solomon's acknowledging that. He's like, I hit this point and maybe I'm leading, but the next leader's coming in. And the, the, the issue is everything's gonna change. It should change probably. They have different ideas. They have different policies. They have different ways that they lead. It's gonna change. And he's like, and I'm gonna be forgotten. Then he gives them a story of another person who's like a rags to riches story, right? Where, and then they elevate and they, they grow and they get to this point of this maybe the same place that he's gonna be. So it's like, man, I was born to be king. Maybe Solomon would say that, but then the next king may come up through the ranks and it's somebody who's like fought and worked and, and done really like good things. And then they achieved this position. And do you know what's gonna happen when their time is done? The same thing that's gonna happen to me. The next person's going to come in. I'm not going to rule forever. I can't always lead. There's always going to be the next person coming in and making changes. Policies or ideas that I think are extremely important for church at the well, someday somebody's gonna, somebody else is going to be pastoring this church, and they're going to go, that's not important as this. And that's okay. That's how it works. That's life. But what he's saying is, not only is it lonely at the top, but if you process the end, it gets lonelier. Like something that I've poured so much time and energy into when I'm gone could just evaporate. That's a lonely thought. Some of you... I'm just trying to think of examples here, but some of you work jobs that you don't like. And, and here's, here's the thought process. I have no idea what they would do if I wasn't here. Some of that could be actually true, right? However, I will tell you this. I have worked jobs where I have thought the same thing. And do you know what? I left. And do you know what happened? Somebody else came in and did what I did. And they might have done it better. That's just how life works. You look at, last example, athletes in the United States or around the world, every record is eventually get destroyed, right? Maybe not Tom Brady's playing until he's 90, and so his stats are going to keep coming, right? But the reality is every, something gets better, you work so hard to get to this place where it's like, oh, I won the big game. Unless you're a huge, huge football historian, you probably can't tell me who won the Super Bowl 10 years ago or who the MVP was because nobody cares. And Solomon's saying, man, that's, it's hard to hear that. And it's, it, it, it's lonely to process. So now that we've knocked ourselves down, and we say, okay, we know isolation's bad. We know that we have a tendency to want to do it. And when we process life, it seems to really isolate us. What's the solution? Jump to verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So he moves, we went backwards, but he moves to the spot where he's talking about money. Money's lonely. Money doesn't provide comfort. If you're hurting and you have a lot of money, it's not like you can go to the bank and come out feeling more comforted. It doesn't work that way. And so what he's doing is he's starting to make this comparison for us. He goes, we work out of envy. There's people who are oppressed and there's oppressors and that isolates. There's, there's this, this isolation that occurs when we think about our end and all the work that we've toiled through. There's isolation that comes when we choose money over people or success over people. And then he asks this question, why are you doing it then? Who are you doing it for? Let's check our motives. Why do we come together? 
Why do we prevent isolation? Why are you here today? Why is this valuable? And he's realizing that, man, if I'm just doing this for me, if my whole motivation is everything that the United States from the moment I've been born has told me, he who dies with the most toys wins. I'm just supposed to keep progressing. I need more stuff. Marketing, marketing, marketing. If that's all there is, then what I will end up with is this really lonely, depressed, miserable existence. But he gives this hypothetical, what if I'm doing it for something bigger? This is when everything changes. Verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. He goes into some logic. Friends, camaraderie, community is so valuable from some practical standpoints as well. Number one, hey, we benefit from each other. Think, think about this for a second. So I am now, I, I'm working, you know, work at the coffee house, right? And what I've realized is that I can get more work done if there's somebody else here with me. Go figure, right? If you work on your own, you may get the job done, but it's only one person. What if there were two people working? What would happen? What about three? You can double the work, triple the work, quadruple the work. What ends up happening? More productivity. What happens to more productivity? More profit. Working together has practical implications. Take that to a spiritual component. Take that to a church. I grew up in churches where the expectation was that the pastor was going to do everything. Everything. I'm here, you feed me. I'm here, entertain me. I'm here. I, I, I hated big church world, and you probably have heard me say this before. I was pastoring this large church, and I told, I've told Christy this so many times. I felt like a glorified events planner. My job, all it felt like my job was to do was to just keep people busy. Like, oh, we're going to do an event here. We're going to do an event here. We're going to do an event here. And we're going to do this and this and this. And all we were doing was creating this space where it was 32 acres of buildings that we were just inviting people into and say, we're going to keep you so busy here that you can't do anything else. Hated it. Because I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. Imagine a church where the people are working together for the good of what's outside of these four walls. Imagine a church that really looked at a pastor and went, their job is to equip the saints. Who are the saints? Me. Why am I a saint? Because I know Jesus. Well, what can I do well? I should do that. Not for envy, not for success, but out of motivation for the good of others. He keeps going. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. Anybody in here ever fall? <laughs> Sorry, inside joke. Anybody in here ever fall? Um, I f I'm clumsy. I fell down the stairs recently, put a hole in our wall with my knee. Um, <laughs> it hurt. Um, it hurt the wall. <laughs> But here's the thing, somebody heard me fall down the stairs. Boom, curse word, maybe. Shoot, dang. Um, and do you know what happened? Somebody showed up. Now, it doesn't have to be a physical fall. Have you ever 
fallen elsewhere? Emotionally? Spiritually? Relationally? What did it feel like to fall in isolation of COVID? It's hard. When I told you, like, I was in this point of depression, it was hard. That would put a lot of pressure on Christy to be the one to lift me up. What would have happened if there were more people around? We help each other. We lift each other up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. Like, how can one keep warm alone? There's comfort in community. Yeah, there's pain, but there's comfort. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. One of the things, I, I had a conversation recently with somebody, and I'm like, the, the fascinating thing about church world, and you've heard this before, is ten, church world tends to eat its own, right? Somebody in the church falls, and what do we tend to do? We attack them. You said something I don't like. I'm going to come after you. You have an opinion different. I'm going to knock you down. That's common. That, that is church. <laughs> it feels like often, right? And many of you say, yeah, that's pretty much what I've experienced. What would happen if it was different than that? What would happen if the church actually did what it was supposed to and encouraged one another? Now, encouraging doesn't mean that we just constantly are sunshine over each other. Encouraging also means that we convict each other and we reprimand each other and we attempt to help each other grow, but it's supposed to be in the context of family, right? My goal isn't to take these other motivations when you fall and go, huh, finally, they're knocked down. I'm going to kick them harder. The goal is to say, my brother or sister in Christ just fell. And that's family. We may not be blood relatives, but we've been blood bought together. What do I need to do? I need to help get them up. That's the goal. That's the ultimate end. Imagine what would happen if the church came to your aid. One of the hardest things about being a pastor, so I'll just, once again, because you can relate to the stories. The hardest thing about being a pastor is when somebody attacks me and I look around, there's nobody there to defend me. That's hard. And I, it's not like I don't know that people aren't there to defend me. It's just either they're scared or they buy into the hype or whatever, right? So that's me, now you. Somebody attacks you, comes after you, you fall. Could be your own sin, could be my own sin, whatever. Isn't it horrible when nobody's there to help you? To pick you up? To encourage you? Isolation is awful. What would it look like for a church to refuse isolationism and actually build community, to encourage one another, to use their gifts for the good, to stop saying we fight evil with evil because our weapon in the gospel is love. Here's one of the things that I think Solomon's gonna push us to is you realize that loving an individual is never wrong. Displaying love to an individual is never wrong, ever. Displaying evil to an individual is always wrong, always. All right, I'm going to end with this because I'm hoping it rocks you a little bit. There was a reason why Jesus died alone. This is a component of gospel theology that we don't often think about. I'm going to say it again. There's a reason why Jesus died alone. 
begins. Do you remember the moment where he's in the garden and he's asking his friends to pray and it's not happening? And he's like, man, you say you love me, but you can't even like stay awake. And then do you remember that moment on the cross when Jesus cries out, my Lord, my Lord, why have you forsaken me? Crazy theology to think about. The only moment where any part of the Trinity was absent from the Trinity itself. And I don't even know what that means. But, the, but the God the Father literally turns his back on God the Son. Why did Jesus die alone? His friends denied him. Peter stopped ministering and went back to fishing. Why did Jesus die alone? So that you don't have to. Do you understand that component of the gospel? Jesus died alone so you don't have to. Isolation, evil, hatred, all the poor motivations that we've talked about actually flies in the face of Jesus because he already paid for that. He paid a lonely death so that you don't have to have a lonely life. He, he paid in isolation so that isolation never becomes a thing for you. He broke that barrier. Choosing isolation from the body in any one of these motivations in life, claiming to be a Christ follower is just as sinful as choosing any other sin. It's just throwing it back in Jesus' face. I, I have a hard time with that because it, it gets personal, but every time I choose to sin, do you know what I'm telling Jesus? I know you died for that, but I want to do it anyway. <laughs> you just go, ah, that hurts. It's supposed to. That's called conviction. It hopefully moves me to repentance, which moves me to joy. But do you realize that every time we isolate, every time we remove ourselves from the body, every time that's our answer, every time we work in one of these motivations that Solomon has asked, it's sin. It's saying, I know you died in isolation, but I refuse to accept the gift of community that you've bought for me. I told some people today, like, this is gonna be a hard one, guys. It's hard for me. Because my natural tendency when I'm hurt or when I'm struggling is to pull away. I don't have to do that. Jesus did it. The gospel fixes all of that. He, he didn't die for one person. He died for a lot. He dies for you personally, but he also dies for the church. His isolation frees us from isolation. Paying for our sin frees us from eternal death. He just keeps going on and on. What needs to change? What needs to change? There's no reason for anybody to feel alone. There shouldn't be. There's no reason for anybody to be unsupported. It's not like we can all fix each other's issues. But I, we can walk through them together. I like this show, NCIS. Okay, judge me. Fine. Um, there's a guy, character, and he tells a story. And, and he says, you know, there's a guy who basically was walking and fell in a hole, and he couldn't get out. And, and his friend, West, West Wing. Sorry, it's West Wing. West Wing. There's a guy walking, falls in a hole, can't get out. And his friend walks by and, and he's in the hole. He's like, hey, help me out. And he's expecting his friends to reach down and grab him. And instead his friend jumps in the hole with him. And he's like, what are you doing? Now we're both stuck in the hole. And he goes, no, listen, I've been in this hole before and I know how to get out. So just follow me. That to me 
is what the community of Christ is supposed to do. You jump in the hole with each other. Because we can find our way out together, right? If you're here today and you've never placed your trust in Jesus, I want to explain to you that your attempt to find true community outside of Christ will never occur. You're destined to live a life of constant isolation. Your family will let you down. Your friends will let you down. Your work will let you down. Whatever community you choose will let you down. You need to know Christ. He purchases you and places you in a family that though can let you down is eternal. Meaning, The purpose of the church is to walk through the holes together, to encourage one another, to be there for each other, to not worry about things like isolation and envy. If that's you, I'd encourage you to ask some questions, talk to some people, find out more about Jesus. For the church, I feel like this hits the church in a hard way. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's done in here. I know how he's wrecked me this week. I know two things. I'm an extrovert, and I still struggle with wanting to isolate when I'm hurt or in pain. I know that. That's weird. I don't know how to deal with it fully, but I know that to be true. So it's wrecked me in the aspect of going, that's not the solution. It's also wrecked me to look at the church as a whole throughout the United States, throughout the world, and go, is there really community that's being built? Are we perpetuating real community, or are we pushing people further into isolation? And then the last one for me is, what's my motive? I mean, that feels like a daily question. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I know that I'm doing it for Jesus, but even that, at times, I can make dirty. What's your motivation? Is it for you? Is it for him? Is it for others? Um, I think these are things that the book of Ecclesiastes and Pastor Solomon require for us to contemplate. From a church perspective, I think, why why are we here? What's the point? Because if it has to do with these motivations that he's talked about at the beginning, then does it really matter? And the answer would be no. What do you need to change in your heart? What do you need to repent over? Maybe you need a different context for church. Maybe you need a different context for the people that you're sitting next to. Don't leave here the same. We're going to give some time for just, I just want to give you some time to process. Um. band's going to come up. We're going to sing an old hymn. It's actually my favorite hymn. And there's going to be some opportunities for you. So I know there's going to be some people up here that are willing to pray with you. Um, If you just want to be prayed over or for, I would encourage you. Maybe you need to spend some time in prayer. Uh, Maybe that needs to be private and you can pull yourself away or maybe it needs to be in confession and you need to come forward and hit your knees. Um, Maybe maybe it's as deep as you realize that you've actually been the source of isolation for somebody in this room and that needs to be resolved right now. Maybe you've isolated yourself 
and you need to re-engage, which means you could go back there and scan a QR code to get into a small group. But I, I, I'm convinced that how Church at the Well and its members handle this specific topic will actually determine how effective we're going to impact this community for, for Jesus. Because if we look like the rest of the world, there is no impact. Father, thank you for your word. I feel wrecked and beat up. I love and hate this book at the same time. And I'm just honest. Lord, I, I want to pray for anybody in this room who has never experienced the love of Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you would regenerate their heart right now. Save them. I pray for anyone in this room who's feeling isolated. Lord, we don't function there. So I pray whatever it takes that you would pull them out of that isolation and bring them into community. Remind them that Jesus died alone so they don't have to be alone. Lord, I pray for your church, your church around the world, that the community that's produced in it would look different than the community that the world produces. I pray for Church at the Well in East Boston, that we would truly search our hearts, that we would be community enhancers to the glory of Jesus and our joy over a church that creates isolation and pain. Lord, mature us, break us, humble us, remind us that we're not really as great as we think we are. And Lord, help the gospel to be the uniting factor of your people. pray we would love each other. And I pray that that love would become contagious to the rest of our, our world. May it point to you in every way possible. In Jesus' name, amen.